Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. Here are today's top stories. Republicans turn up the heat on a key Labor Department nominee, with one lawmaker even whipping out his MC microphone. The Democratic lawmakers swooped in to her defense. The first so-called smart gun is set to hit the U.S. market. Advocates argue this will make Americans safer. Others say the opposite will happen. We bring you both sides. Is China the number one threat to the U.S.? Senator Josh Hawley and others call for quick action to protect the U.S. economy from the CCP. And a nursery in Phoenix treats babies affected by the opioid crisis. We hear from staff who help babies through symptoms brought on by their parents' opioid use. President Joe Biden's nominee for Department of Labor Secretary was in the hot seat on Capitol Hill yesterday. Senate Republicans grilled Julie Sue over the massive fraud that took place under her watch in a previous post. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more. Julie Sue is serving as the acting head of the Department of Labor, but still needs to win the Senate's approval to cement that position. Sue previously served as the California Secretary of Labor. The nominee faced substantial pushback from Republicans during the hearing. Senator Bill Cassidy criticized Sue's track record at the Employment Development Department, or EDD, which lost over $30 billion to fraud. Under Ms. Sue, fraud in California was rampant. Cassidy cited the case of rapper Nuke Bizzle. Bizzle was arrested after rapping about how he had defrauded the California government of COVID-19 relief funds. Cassidy recited the lyrics during the hearing. I done got rich off of EDD. Ain't hit no more licks because of EDD. Just last night I was selling peas and I just woke up to 300 G's. Bizzle was convicted in order to pay back $700,000. Senator Mitt Romney also criticized Sue for the $30 billion in fraudulent unemployment insurance payments. That's about as much as we provided in military aid to Ukraine. Senator Chris Murphy defended Sue, saying California is a big state which has big numbers. Murphy contends that the percentage of fraud tells a different tale. The number in California is about 11 percent of benefits paid, but... You know, in Tennessee, it was 15 percent. In Alabama, it was 14 percent. In South Carolina, it was 14 percent. While Sue herself cites the extraordinary situation the world was in during the pandemic. It was meant to go out quickly because we were facing a massive crisis. She also told the panel that she took action to prevent further fraud. Meanwhile, Senator Bernie Sanders said he strongly supports Ms. Sue's nomination. She is prepared to take on powerful special interests and stand up to the needs of those working people who desperately need defending today. Sue's confirmation is far from certain. She has yet to win the support of key Democrat players in the Senate like Joe Manchin and John Tester, both up for re-election in heavily red states next year. A final vote on the nominee is expected sometime next week. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. A top U.S. health official acknowledges that people who have received a COVID-19 vaccine can transmit the disease to others. That's after previously making the opposite claim. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director Rochelle Walensky said in 2021 that people who received a COVID-19 vaccine do not carry the virus and do not get sick. But now she tells a Washington congressional committee that there has been an evolution of science and an evolution of the virus. She says that since the arrival of the current crop of Omicron subvariants, that her previous statement is no longer correct. But the Food and Drug Administration, with authorized the vaccines, has never changed its stance that clinical trials do not test transmission. Speaking of the pandemic, House Republicans plan to hear more testimony on the consequences of forced school closures. Representative Brad Winstrup yesterday announced the second hearing. The president of the American Federation of Teachers, Randy Weingarten, will serve as a key witness. Lawmakers are investigating what role Weingarten and the Teachers Federation may have played in, quote, editing the CDC's COVID-19 school reopening guidance and keeping schools closed longer than necessary. Winstrup said Weingarten may have jeopardized the well-being of America's children during the COVID-19 pandemic. The congressman believes she should be held accountable if that's the case. The first so-called smart gun is set to hit the market by the end of this year. 
The Biden administration has been advocating for the use of such guns. However, some are raising safety concerns. Here's what people have to say. Firearms using biometrics to unlock before being able to shoot. The first of its kind is set to hit U.S. markets at the end of the year. A company called BioFire Technologies announced this month that it's already taking pre-orders. The idea behind the unlocking feature is to prevent unwanted access to children and criminals. BioFire CEO says many keep their weapons next to their bed, where they can be easily accessed by children. Because in practice, it's very, very, very challenging to get access to a firearm out of a gun safe uh, in any sort of real-world kind of home invasion situation. Um, at the same time, you know, firearms are now the leading cause of death for children and teenagers in America, and a big portion of that is gaining access to firearms in the home. The BioFire gun has integrated infrared sensors in the grip to keep it armed while the user is holding it. As soon as the grip is released, the gun locks. The two biometrics used are fingerprint sensors and 3D facial recognition. It is powered by a rechargeable lithium-ion battery that BioFire says lasts several months with average use. It only comes in 9mm caliber. Buyers are given choices for color and style and left or right-handed. The key thing is, not only is it always locked, but it's also instantly accessible. And so what that means is as soon as the user starts to interact with the firearm, it immediately wakes up, recognizes their biometrics using our garden, Guardian biometric system, uh, and then stays unlocked for as long as they're holding on to it. However, the NRA told the Epic Times that the stress of real life is different than product testing, saying, Firearms have to perform in all situations, not just the predictable and controllable circumstances at a gun range. In addition, the National Shootings Sports Foundation told the Epic Times if that technology fails, that could be catastrophic for an individual depending upon it to save his or her life. President Biden has been advocating for smart guns in campaign on making all firearms sold to have smart gun technology. He said in 2020 that we have the technology to allow only authorized users to fire a gun, even though there were no smart guns on the market at the time. BioFire, which is based in Colorado, raised $30 million in venture capital to develop the smart gun. Nebraska is set to be the 27th state to allow constitutional carry of firearms. A state senator has dedicated his two terms in office to making it a reality. Nebraska State Senator Tom Brewer says the effort has been a seven-year labor of love. The bill allows anyone who can legally own a firearm to carry it openly or concealed without a permit. New Nebraska Governor Jim Pillen is scheduled to sign the bill and make it official on April 25th. Pillen said in an email that he supports constitutional carry because Nebraskans have the right to self-defense and that this bill would eliminate unnecessary burdens and barriers for gun owners. Brewer said the bill now takes into account concerns from law enforcement, including a requirement to notify an officer if you are armed. Coming up... I'll speak with an expert to find out what's next in the Pentagon leaked document saga, find out how much time the suspect could get, and how the U.S. could ramp up its security. And a child abuse survivor discloses the unresolved mystery of sister Kathy Tesnick in the wake of the shocking church sexual abuse report from the Maryland Attorney General. That story in just a moment. What's next in the leaked document saga? To find out, I spoke with Mark Ruskin, retired FBI agent and author of The Pretender, My Life Undercover. Mark has worked at numerous U.S. embassies in Europe and South America. He's also worked on investigations involving various levels of classified information. Mark Ruskin, thank you for joining us. Hi, Chris. Thanks for inviting me. Great to be here. First, let's talk about the leaker, Jack Teixeira. His case has recently been delayed. What do you think his ultimate fate will be? I suspect that ultimately Jack Teixeira is going to be spending a significant amount of time in prison, in federal prison, over the next several years. My guesstimate, based on what I've seen so far, is and his age and his history would be probably approximately 20 years, ultimately. So what about law enforcement? How might the feds attempt to prevent this kind of leak going forward? Well, addressing this kind of threat is an ongoing process. And essentially, the best that the government can do is enhance its selection process in terms of who has access to classified information and then 
perhaps more importantly, to stick to the, uh, the tried and true uh, access issue, which is need to know. Individuals who don't have a need to know should not have access to classified information. Unfortunately, that's not always respected. And, and because of that, you have individuals who don't truly have a need to know accessing classified information. And then in some cases, like here, uh, publishing it in publicly accessible uh, areas, such as on the internet, social media sites. The Air Force is currently investigating Otis Air National Guard Base, where Teixeira was assigned. Um, are you aware of this investigation, and what do you think the results will be? Well, it typically, there's going to be an investigation at the site where any leak of classified information occurred. And perhaps, as uh, so often happens in a bureaucracy, a middle-level manager might get axed uh, in order to you know, be thrown to the wolves in order to uh, protect the people at the higher level. So that might be another consequence is someone may have to, to pay the bill, the butcher's bill, as it were, for, for this uh, leak here. Some of the leaked information deals with the war in Ukraine. How is the release of this information affecting the war there? Well, it's too early to tell what the consequences will be. Overall, it gives the too much information to uh, China, to Russia, to Iran, uh, and to so, you know, sources within Ukraine, which uh, would be better off if uh, had they had not uh, had this information accessible to them. So all, all around, it's not a good sense. Mark Ruskin, retired FBI agent and former assistant district attorney in Brooklyn, thank you. Thank you for having me here. A Texas man is sentenced to life in prison after his ninth arrest for driving while intoxicated. He pleaded guilty and allowed the jury to decide his punishment. The 50-year-old's latest arrest comes after an accident in August last year. An investigation discovered that Christopher Stanford ran a red light and crashed into another vehicle. He told the other driver he had to leave and fled the scene on foot. 30 minutes later, he was seen trying to jump over a barbed wire fence. His clothes were torn by the wire. He was also accused of headbutting an emergency medical worker who tried to treat his injuries. The district attorney says Stanford's blood alcohol was three times over the legal limit at the time. Synthetic opioid abuse in the United States. A nursery in Phoenix, Arizona is treating some of the most vulnerable victims of the opioid crisis, newborn babies. In a darkened room in Phoenix, Arizona, one of the smallest victims of the U.S. opioid crisis is comforted. When you um, see a baby withdraw, never, ever, ever forget it. Before they took their first breath, these babies were exposed to drugs in the womb. Now they're being treated for neonatal abstinence syndrome, or NAS, a condition brought on by withdrawal. Among the range of symptoms, babies with NAS can tremble uncontrollably, clenching their muscles and gasping for breath. They tend to crave the darkness and calm, so the rooms are kept quiet, with the lights off, away from commotion. In the nursery, we have uh, SNU, which is a fancy uh, bassinet that when baby cries, uh, starts wiggling, it will start swaying back and forth. It will do a womb noise, kind of a shushing noise to be like mommy's heartbeat. We have a bed where mom and dad, we really want them to stay. The clinic treats not just the newborn, but the whole family. So my daughter did go through some withdrawals. She did not need medication to help with those withdrawals, but she did stay in the hospital for seven days. Clarissa Collins is a recovering addict who went through the program with her own daughter in 2019. Now she helps other families as a peer support specialist at the clinic. If I didn't meet Hashabaya, I would have had no clue what NAS was, that, that baby was going to withdraw, what to look for, how to, how to care for my baby. I had no knowledge. So we do see fentanyl a lot. Uh, the moms are either using it or misusing the fentanyl. Dr. Suma Rao is a neonatologist and medical director at the Banner University Medical Center NICU in Phoenix. 
The other th worrisome fact is that uh, there's a lot of other drugs or a lot of illicit drugs that are being laced with fentanyl. And the mother may or may not know that she's been taking this that has been laced with fentanyl. Overdoses involving synthetic opioids, mainly fentanyl, killed more than 70,000 people in the U.S. in 2021, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The fentanyl crisis just keeps going. But for Sundam, knowing she's helping families in crisis makes the hard work bearable. We get the chance to make a difference every single day. You have no idea what these families do for me every single day. See, I mean, they all tell, tell us thank you. They're all so grateful. But to see a family get well is the best thing in the whole wide world. Maryland ratified the Child Victims Act last week. It allows victims of child abuse to seek justice at any age, even decades later. The new law followed a staggering report from the Attorney General detailing over 600 victims of sexual abuse by members of the church. Entities Daniel Monahan reached out to abuse survivor and author Jean Hargaden Wainer. She shares her harrowing experience. Please be warned that this report is disturbing and contains adult topics. Jean Wainer was 14 when her abuse at the hands of Father Neil Magnus and Father Joseph Maskell began at Archbishop Keogh High School in Baltimore. She says apart from the horrifying sexual abuse and rape, the pair also used verbal abuse and intimidation tactics. He sat across from me and slowly as he's talking, he's taking the bullets out and he's putting them one at a time on the table in front of me. And then he put the gun up to my head. It was like Russian roulette, you know, and he pulled the trigger. I can still hear the, the click of the trigger. And um, and it was it was deafening. It was so loud. And the pair intimidated her in other ways with obscene pictures. And they would show um, pictures. He was showing pictures to me. One was of a little a little boy without a, a penis. Another was a woman without a tongue. Um, and and his phrase was, "You see what happens when you say bad things about people." Um, they had books of children dressed in uh, sexy lingerie. Weiner says Moscow went to other extremes. Where he used a dog collar with a leash. Uh, I know that he used a paddle on me. Um, he did enemas. He um, took me to a GYN. He had, a, had me have a, a forced abortion that I didn't even know I was having. The abuse survivor says she was also trafficked to a policeman and a parishioner under the watch of Moscow. After some time, the traumatized teen confided in a kind teacher named Sister Kathy Sesnick. So she said, um, is anybody making you do something you don't want to do? And I shook my head, yes. And she said, um, are they hurting you? And I shook my head, yes. And she said, is it the priest? And I looked at her and I shook my head, yes. And she said something to the effect of, Jesus, I thought so. And she hugged me and she said, um, I'm going to take care of this. You go have a good summer. The young teacher would soon disappear. Wayner says Moscow later took her to see Sister Kathy's dead body. And she's crumpled on the ground. And I ran over and I noticed that she had maggots in her face. And he came down and said, you see what happens when you say bad things about people? I remember he had gloves on, he picked her up, and I remember there being a dumpster to the, over to the right at some point and him putting her in it. Police found the body of Sister Kathy Sesnick in January 1970. Her unsolved murder served as the basis for the Emmy-nominated Netflix documentary series The Keepers in 2017. Wayner published her memoir titled Walking with Alethea last year. It is available on Amazon. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The death penalty has been eliminated in Washington state. Democratic Governor Jay Inslee signed a bill Thursday eliminating the death penalty from state law. The bill passed the state's legislature earlier this month. Inslee cited a 2018 ruling by Washington state's Supreme Court saying the death penalty was unconstitutional because it was inconsistently applied. The governor added that the sentence had been applied unequally and in a racially insensitive manner, 
calling the new law a move forward for fairness in the state. Coming up, a young teen in Ohio dies doing a dangerous TikTok challenge, putting the app's content back in the spotlight. Will the company take accountability for the algorithm? And a tragedy in eastern China. A female acrobat fell to her death while she was performing without any safety equipment. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. Lawmakers say the United States is facing a multi-generational threat from communist China. They urge immediate action to protect the economy and technologies from the regime. Senator Josh Hawley spoke at an April 20th summit of the Heritage Foundation. China has the ability to be a truly peer competitor to the United States in a way we simply haven't seen for over a century now. That means that when it comes to our interests abroad, we have got to rigorously focus on countering China, our biggest threat at home. It means a rigorous focus on bringing back industry, bringing back blue-collar jobs, jobs that can support a family, curbing the power of the big multinational corporations that want to squelch competition, that want to dominate our markets. Hawley also criticized the decision to grant Communist China permanent status as most favored trade partner in 2000. He called it one of the most colossal errors any global power has made in its history. Hawley says it has resulted in the continued guaranteed cut gutting of the American working class. According to Hawley, the outflow of jobs and wealth has contributed directly to the CCP's military expansion and modernization. The senator says the country now directly threatens global stability and U.S. interests. A judge denies the bail request of exiled Chinese businessman Mild Guo. He faces charges in the U.S. on fraudulent investment scheme involving over $1 billion. The judge in the case says prosecutors proved Guo was likely a serious flight risk. The judge also said Guo has shown obstructive behavior in the case that left her with no assurance he would comply with any bail conditions. The 52-year-old defendant is a prominent critic of the Chinese Communist Party, who left in 2014. Guo's lawyer argued Guo would remain in the United States if released on bond because the risk to his life is simply too great for him to leave. U.S. prosecutors charged Guo last month with defrauding thousands of followers by promising outsized investment returns and diverting much of their money to fund lavish lifestyles for himself and his family. Guo has pleaded not guilty to 11 charges. Turning to TikTok, the algorithm is under scrutiny again after multiple teen deaths. Here's NTD's Tiffany Meyer with more. Death by TikTok. A 13-year-old boy from Ohio is dead. That's after he overdosed on a common allergy medication when he participated in a so-called TikTok challenge. His family said he took 12 to 14 Benadryl tablets. That's more than six times the recommended dosage. The TikTok challenge suggested taking that amount could lead to hallucinations. But after filming himself taking that amount on camera, the boy started having seizures and was rushed to the emergency room. There, he was pronounced brain dead. The boy's father sharing on a GoFundMe, that's when the family decided to take him off life support. The father writing on the GoFundMe, I ask for your help so that we can have a proper funeral and send off for this young man. He's not the only one. TikTok has come under fire after multiple deaths. Bloomberg reporting the TikTok algorithm continues to push suicide videos on Chase Nasca's page. That's despite the 16-year-old killing himself the year before. Chase's mom, desperate for answers, started checking his social media. On TikTok, she saw the terms he had searched, Batman, basketball, and motivational speeches. But what the algorithm served up was something else depression, hopelessness, and death. Scrolling for an hour on his For You feed, she didn't understand why there were no funny videos. Where were the jokes and dance videos she had heard about? 
One after another, she saw videos of breakups, suicide, and depression. And how is TikTok responding to these issues? Here's what the company's CEO, Suji Chu, had to say last month before Congress. We're going to prioritize safety, particularly for teenagers, and we're going to keep it a top priority for us. When pressed for a yes or no answer, he seemed reluctant to give one. Last year, a federal judge in Pennsylvania found that Section 230 protected TikTok from being held responsible for the death of a 10-year-old girl who participated in a blackout challenge, also known as the choking challenge. TikTok actively pushes video on her feed. Unfortunately, this is one of the many devastating examples of children losing their lives because of content promoted by TikTok. <clears throat> Congressman, as a father myself, when I hear about the tragic deaths of my question young people, is, do you, it's heartbreaking. Do you heartbreaking. find that good faith moderation? Well, Congressman, uh, Section 230 is a very complex okay, I'm, issue. I'm, you know, yes or no? I, we are very focused on safety, and okay, all these I'm, dangerous I'm, I'm challenges are moving that. As move a no. we find that. More than half of U.S. states have banned TikTok on governmental devices. Among them, Montana is the first and only state right now trying to implement a complete ban on the Chinese-owned app in the whole state. Members of parliament have urged the U.K. government to shut down alleged Chinese police stations in the country and to kick the people operating them out of the country. Policing Minister Chris Phillip confirmed Wednesday that law enforcement agencies are investigating the allegations. He said the latest reports are of great concern. Any attempt, any attempt to coerce, intimidate or illegally repatriate any individual will not be tolerated. This egregious activity is part of a wider trend of authoritarian governments, not just China but others as well, perpetrating transnational repression in an effort to silence their critics overseas, undermine democracy and the rule of law, and further their own narrow geopolitical interests. At least four sites of concern in London, Glasgow and Belfast were identified by members of parliament in the House of Commons. They were accused of seeking to intimidate Chinese dissidents. Philip said the UK government is aware of approximately 100 alleged stations around the world. The Times reported that a Chinese businessman is linked to a secret police station in Croydon, and he allegedly organized Conservative Party fundraising dinners and has been photographed alongside prime ministers. An acrobat fell to her death while she was performing in an eastern province of China. A warning, we're about to show you the video of her fall. Video on social media shows a male acrobat wrapping his arms in fabric. He held on to female acrobat, his wife, as a crane lifts the two off the ground. The woman then switches positions in the air. That's when she suddenly fell. Screams are heard from the audience. The woman wasn't attached to any harness. Before the performance, the show host allegedly emphasized there would be no protective measures. That was, in his words, to play real. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. When we come back, the British Deputy Prime Minister steps down after an inquiry into his alleged bullying of colleagues. And some 100,000 Australians are banding together to sue telecommunications company Optus after their personal data was exposed in a cyber attack. More shortly, here on NTD News Today. Britain's deputy prime minister has resigned after an investigation into complaints he bullied colleagues, the latest scandal to force out one of Rishi Sunak's top ministers. Dominic Robb quit today. He's the third senior minister in six months to resign over personal conduct. Robb's departure comes just two weeks ahead of English local council elections, where Sunak's conservatives are predicted to fare badly. Sunak's government follows the scandal-ridden tenure of Boris Johnson, and the chaotic economic policies that brought down Liz Truss in less than two months. Does he think more bullies will be brought to justice? Yeah. The months-long independent investigation into Raab's behaviour 
heard evidence from multiple government officials about complaints of bullying at three different departments. Raab requested the investigation in November. He said he felt duty-bound to accept the outcome, but defended his own conduct. He said the report, which has not yet been publicly released, concluded he had not once sworn, shouted or physically intimidated anyone and dismissed all but two of the claims against him. It set the threshold for bullying so low, Raab said, that it set a dangerous precedent for the conduct of good government. Sunak is facing his own investigation. Parliament's standards watchdog is looking into whether the Prime Minister properly declared his wife's shareholding in a childcare company, which would benefit from a new government policy. The British government named Oliver Dowden to replace Rob. The Deputy Prime Minister has no formal powers, but steps in for the Prime Minister if he is away from Parliament or incapacitated. Dowden has been serving as Cabinet Office Minister in Sunak's government. He was previously chairman of Sunak's Conservative Party, but resigned from that post last June. Also in the UK, a coroner officially names the AstraZeneca vaccine as the most likely cause of a man's death. His widow is planning to sue the pharmaceutical giant. The London Inner South Southwark Coroner's Court confirmed that the death of NHS psychologist Stephen Wright in 2021 was due to what it called unintended consequences of a COVID vaccination. His widow, Charlotte Wright, has been fighting for two years to try to get the natural causes wording on her husband's death certificate changed. I think there's a sense of relief that it's finally on paper, in, written in black and white. We can finally say that we have this proof. Um, but unfortunately, it doesn't bring much closure to myself um, due to the impending litigation that we intend to take against AstraZeneca and the government. The coroner's report noted that 32-year-old Wright was a fit and healthy man when he had the COVID vaccination in January 2021. As a frontline health worker, he was among the earliest groups of people to be vaccinated during the pandemic. He died 10 days later. The report named the cause of death vaccine-induced thrombosis as a direct result of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Charlotte Wright said he was the first person in the UK to die from the AstraZeneca jab. His two young sons were aged seven and one at the time. They were saying it was 100% safe and effective, yeah. but now they're saying, as with every medication, there's risks. So. They should have known that and, and put in the support and, and, and care and attention and allowed people to, to speak out if they have had an adverse reaction to such a case, such, a, such an experience. There should be things that have been put in place before the rollout. Wright said she was told by authorities that they had noticed abnormalities with the case and that they had never seen a stroke like it before. She was awarded a payment of £120,000 last summer from the government's vaccine damage payment scheme. Wright is planning to sue AstraZeneca. Some 100,000 people in Australia are suing telecommunications giant Optus. A data hacking crisis last year compromised 1.2 million customers. The claim lodged by law firm Slater and Gordon in federal court on Friday accuses Optus of breaching laws and the company's own internal policies. While the claim didn't mention how much class action members want for compensation, lawyer Ben Hardwick said it should reflect the gravity of the incident. We'll be seeking a substantial sum of compensation from Optus. The amount of damages will ultimately be a matter for the court. For everyday Australians, their privacy is often priceless. So it's hard to put a price on what it means to have your information compromised. Starting with the Optus breach in September, a spate of cyber attacks on Australia's corporate sector exposed data from tens of millions of customers online. The lawsuit seeks compensation for the time and money required to replace identity documents and for distress caused by the breach. Victims of the hack have recently spoken to Australian media. Jane, who is using an alias, claims her real name, address, phone number and email address were leaked online. I've had history with domestic violence and a partner who had been charged for stalking and threats to kill. 
So those sort of things, that, that information you don't want out. You don't want people finding that information out, whether I've gone to extreme lengths over the years to keep basic details a secret. Another victim, Kate, told Australian media the Optus data breach caused safety worries for her and her children, as she too had been a victim of domestic violence. It has affected so many people so deeply and it's not just something that just was an inconvenience then and there. It's something that's continuous and ongoing for the victims. Singapore-owned Optus said in an exchange filing that it had not yet been served with any court documents on the matter and would defend itself in the class action. Coming up, students in Cyprus created their own Android. It's powered by artificial intelligence and even helps out with their lessons. And Afghanistan's education system faces an array of challenges under Taliban rule. School buildings fall apart, books are scarce, and girls can't attend. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Welcome back. A man was arrested wearing a schoolgirl's uniform after he was found in the girls' bathroom of a school in Peru. Local parents were extremely angry. Authorities in the Peruvian city of Wansayu pulled the man through an angry crowd into a police vehicle. It was unclear how the man entered the school or what he was doing in one of the bathroom stalls. The school's director said the 42-year-old stayed in the bathroom for several minutes and put the student's physical and moral integrity at risk. Local media reported that school authorities found photographs on the man's phone showing him wearing the uniforms of various other schools. When asked by a reporter if he regretted what he had done, the man answered by asking why he would regret it. He did nothing wrong. He was later handed over to the prosecutor's office. Classrooms in Cyprus are employing a new teaching tool. It's a robot powered by generative AI that tells jokes and helps out with science curriculum. NTD's Kevin Hogan brings us the story. Meet Einstein. It's the new teaching assistant in Nicosia, Cyprus. The purpose is to have Einstein make the teaching experience better. Uh, students can ask him questions, he can answer back, or he can even facilitate uh, to teachers to actually deliver a lesson more effectively. Einstein is powered by ChatGPT. That's a deep learning model that can generate human-like responses. It knows subjects ranging from art to science and can even tell jokes. Why was the math book sad? Because it had too many problems. But who made this little Michelin man-looking android? Tutors and their high school students. It was made as part of a collaboration between three Pascal schools in the country. Let's see what the students are learning about here. Can you tell me an experiment about time relativity? Oh, how I can do an experiment in my class? You could try constructing a simple pendulum with a long string and a heavy object, like a weight or a ball. You can then swing the pendulum back and forth at different rates, enabling you to measure its frequency and period. By doing this, you can show how the period of the pendulum changes depending on the gravitational field in which it is placed. Very impressive science knowledge, Einstein. But good thing you're not teaching vocal techniques. How did it come up with that voice anyway? Now the second screen now is directly connected to the brain with the ChatGPT. So you see actually here what the robot is recognizing before it sends the signal to the computer to change the voice. So the computer also has been used to, to change the voice of the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the robot to sound like Einstein. Though NTD independently verified that it sounds nothing like recordings of the real Albert Einstein, it seems useful, but what are the drawbacks? Concerns of the machine secretly collecting data on students, not being transparent, making it hard to tell if its responses are accurate, and lacking human empathy to connect with students personally and respond to their individual needs. Kevin Hogan, NTD News. Schools in Afghanistan are struggling after the Taliban's return to power in 2021. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the state of the nation's education system. Every morning, these teachers in Afghanistan carry their inner tubes to the river. They use them to commute to school in the country's eastern Nangarhar province. The other side of the river is about 50 yards away. There aren't any bridges or boats. 
Every day, teachers cross this river to reach Bilai High School. This river belongs to Kunar province and is a big river. When the spring season starts, the amount of water increases. We all cross this river using inner tubes, and we face many problems and challenges when crossing the river since it can be quite risky. The school they teach at currently has about 1,000 students. It was opened in 2004. Some girls attend for primary school, but it's limited since the Taliban's return to power following the withdrawal of American forces. We don't have enough textbooks. We don't have books for grades 9, 10, 11, and 12. It has been a while since books were last distributed to our province. No attention has been paid to this school. The school complex is also too dilapidated for use. There are only three classrooms left now. Most of the classes are held outdoors. As you can see, our students are studying under the sky. Sometimes it rains and students are gathered into two or three classrooms. There is no enclosed area. Teachers sit outside after class since they have no proper office. When a car passes, it distracts the students. Rahman's monthly salary is about $80. That's hardly enough to support his family. Life goes on anyway. There is poverty in general. We are facing so many problems. My salary is not sufficient to support my family. I am also in debt, and the debt is increasing month by month. After two decades of war, Afghanistan remains one of the poorest, least developed countries in the world. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. When we come back, dancers from across the U.S. and around the world compete at Radio City Music Hall. They're all in New York City for a chance to become a rockette. And an 88-year-old hopes to become the world's oldest windsurfer. The Polish retiree has been windsurfing for 40 years. He's known by the tongue-in-cheek name Junior. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Dancers from 48 states and 32 countries flooded Radio City Music Hall in New York City yesterday. They're all here to compete for a chance to become a Radio City Rockette. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. This was New Jersey dancer Kayla Shue's second audition for the Rockettes. She also attended the dance company's summer conservatory. She was thrilled to make the first cut. I, it would be a dream come true ever since I was little. I think every little girl wants to be a Rockette, but um, yeah, it's just kind of validation for all the hard work that I've been putting into this. This audition was Chloe Abrusese's first in New York. I've just been exploring New York in my gap year, just graduated from high school and getting into the dance world, and this is my first real New York audition, so I'm super excited for the experience and to be surrounded by such talented dancers, so really excited, yeah. Gabriella Brooks was one of the first dancers in line, but failed to make the first cut. I'm feeling great, um, so I did not make it to the first round, but it's okay. I'm so glad that I got this experience, and I definitely will be back next year. Dancers quickly learned an eight-count dance routine, and then only had 10 to 15 minutes to rehearse. Then it was showtime in front of the director and dance captains. Oh my gosh, auditioning for the Rockheads. They're feeling all the nerves and excitement and joy and everything that comes with this day. It is an intense day, it's very long. You know, you're in dancing for a couple hours and with a lot of other women, there are over a thousand women here today auditioning. Those selected could receive a coveted spot on the Rockettes roster for the 2023 Christmas Spectacular. Or they could be invited to attend the Rockettes Conservatory this summer. I'm a ballet dancer and like that, I, I've, I've said uh, a few times like I want to be a professional dancer, but the fact of being a Rockette gives me a different feeling from everything else I have done in the dance world. So. I want to go for it. So I'm just trying to like view it as an opportunity in front of them and just train rather than like trying to get it. So but I'll be back next year. Additional auditions will take place throughout the weekend, but the dancers have to wait until May to learn the final selections. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. An 88-year-old is hoping to become the world's oldest windsurfer. The Polish retiree still relishes in the battle with the elements, and he's passing on his skills to the next generation. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the wind in his sails. 
Piotra Dudek has been windsurfing for 40 years. He's known by the nickname Junior, coined for him by his friends when he was around 80. The first gear was very primitive. Our craftsmen were trying to copy Western designs, but they were very primitive, very heavy boards. Two people needed to carry onto the water, and the boom was attached to the mast with a string. There were no patents like nowadays, for example, latches. These days, Dudek tries to stay off the water when the wind gets too fierce, but windsurfing still keeps him in shape. The biggest advantage of windsurfing is that the whole body is working. All your muscles are working, so you are physically active. Not only technique, but also a lot of strength is needed. Dudek said he needed to windsurf at least twice this spring to break the world record. An 86-year-old currently holds the title. Dudek hopes to be officially certified once the witnessed notification is sent off to Guinness World Records. I didn't realize that I was the oldest, but I was surprised that I had never met someone close to me in age on the water. And that got my friend and I thinking to check in the Guinness Book of Records. Dudek is still sharing his passion with others and continues to teach his large group of young students. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A group of over 100 skydivers set two world records in Paris, California. And here's the kicker. All the athletes are 60 and older. At 18,000 feet in the air, the jumpers succeeded on their fourth attempt at the first record. Together, they formed a 150-foot snowflake in the air. They also claimed a second record for changing formation mid-dive. They are part of the group Skydivers Over 60. The team consists of professional skydivers, a NASA astronaut, and stunt performers. The same group set a similar record in 2018 with more than 70 people participating at the same time. These seniors aim to show the world that life after 60 is fun. Next up, strong mind and body. On this episode, we look at eight foods that are good for your liver. Here's Gina Marie. Did you know that many people have liver diseases like hepatitis C virus and hepatitis B virus? There are many things that lead to liver diseases, including infections, genetics, weak immune system, alcohol, and accumulating fat. The liver is a vitally important organ that does a wide variety of essential tasks. It produces proteins, stores vitamins, and breaks down harmful toxins. It is essential to take care of your liver. So let's get some tips, starting with number one on the list, coffee and tea. Several studies have concluded that coffee can help those living with liver disease. On the other hand, green tea and black tea can improve the quality of enzymes in the liver. Tea is packed with antioxidants that reduce inflammation, support liver function, and protect the liver from the effects of toxic substances like alcohol. Number two on the list is fatty fish. Eating fish provides your liver with a healthy fat. Fatty fish can help to maintain enzyme levels, ease inflammation and reduce fat buildup. Number three on the list is olive oil. Research shows that olive oil consumption reduces the level of fat in the liver, promotes blood flow and maintains enzyme levels. This is because olive oil is packed with healthy fat which is beneficial for the heart, metabolism and liver. Number four on the list is nuts. Nuts are a powerhouse of fats, antioxidants, and healthy plant compounds. And this combination is beneficial for both the heart and the liver. Number five on the list, cruciferous vegetables. Brussels sprouts, broccoli, and mustard greens contain high fiber content and useful plant compounds. Several have proven that the extract of these veggies could increase detoxification enzymes and protect the liver. Number six on the list is grapes. Several studies show that grapes and grape extract prevent liver damage, maintain antioxidant levels, and ease inflammation. However, red and purple grapes are more beneficial than other varieties. And finally, number seven, warm water with lemon. A well-hydrated body is a wonderful aid to liver function. Consider warm water with lemon in the morning. It flushes toxins from the digestive tract. Moreover, it creates an alkaline environment in the body to remove the acidity from toxins. Antioxidants in lemon water stimulate the liver. So there you have it. 
keep in mind these items next time you're shopping at the grocery store. Coffee and tea, fatty fish, olive oil, nuts, cruciferous vegetables, grapes, and warm water with lemon. Police in Wisconsin were put through their paces. A resident called them on Tuesday to get a giant bobcat out of her car. An officer shared surveillance footage of the dramatic call on social media. When three officers arrived on the scene, they found a large bobcat hiding behind the grill of her car. They managed to drag the large feline out and loaded it onto a truck. The animal was later returned to the wild. According to the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, adult bobcats can weigh up to 40 pounds. An Ohio elementary school received a special visit this week. They were members of a neighboring duck family. The ducklings waddled through school halls and hallways. Teachers and students escorted the family to a nearby pond and captured the sweet interaction on camera. All 13 birds made it safely and are doing well. For the past few years, the mother duck has nested and laid eggs in a schoolyard. This year, school staff moved their home to a wooded area behind the school to bring them more fresh air. Thank you for tuning in today. If you'd like to share any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. I'm Chris Beers, NTD News, New York City.